A very good morning to you all. And great to see you all as always. My name's Neil. I'm married to the wonderful Kate. Together we attempt to serve this wonderful group of people. Um, if you are new here or you're visiting, you're very, very welcome. It's lovely to see you. Uh, if you are new or visiting, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to connect you with this part of the body of Christ or any part of the body of Christ. So um, Henry and Cedar, I think, were outside. Uh, but uh, do grab them at the welcome desk afterwards and they will, you're not signing your life away. Um, they might give you a, a goodie bag and a free gift. But, um, but do go and say hello to them. It's great to see you all. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We'll start in verse 21. And the words should miraculously appear behind me. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 21. This is, says this, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and pleaded with him repeatedly. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now, there was a woman who'd been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his cloak, I will be made well. Immediately her flow of blood stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my cloak? And his disciples said to him, you see this crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who'd done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the synagogue's leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the synagogue leader, do not be afraid, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the synagogue leader's house, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, why do you make such a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, hard word, hard word, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Uh, one of the things that hopefully you'll have noticed if you've been um, with us over the past a few weeks and from everything that we've been looking at over these past few weeks uh, throughout Lent is that justice is incarnational. We've been doing a whole series on justice, just to catch you up. And yeah, hopefully you've noticed that justice is incarnational. For there to be justice, there needs to be the presence of incarnation. 
uh, back in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, which is sort of where we kicked out, we get this, this, this picture of this uh, wonderfully rich, uh, full, and vibrant life. It's the sort of life that Jesus later promises his followers in John 10, verse 10, when he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Um, in the Old Testament, where we've, we, hopefully we've seen this, we see that God walks with his people. And as he walks with his people, he helps them uh, discern um, and embody things like justice and compassion. And then in the New Testament, God takes this walking with humanity even further in the words of John's gospel. The word Jesus became flesh and dwelt and lived among us. So just as God dwelt with people, his people in the Old Testament, um, you know, in and through the, uh, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, and then you've got Jesus being born in a stable in Bethlehem, Jesus becomes God with us, uh, Emmanuel. Uh, so too now, God, uh, Jesus dwells in us, with us, in us, and through us by the Holy Spirit because the justice of the kingdom of God is incarnational. God is and always has been very much with us, uh, up close and in person. And throughout much of the Old Testament, especially you see it through the prophets, you see God encouraging um, in, in different ways, but encouraging uh, people to live out their, effectively their calling, their calling to justice and righteousness. And, and that carries on and it continues uh, on through the New Testament, through the incarnation of Jesus. You know, and when we think about the coming of Christ, which, you know, we're doing, we do so especially in a season like we're in now in Lent, um, it's the whole life of Jesus that matters. It's his birth, it's his life, it's his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension. All of those components, they all matter. And one of the reasons it matters is because the life of Jesus is the incarnation of justice. It's in watching the interactions of Jesus with the other that we get to see incarnational justice at work. It's by seeing, reading through the Gospels and seeing how Jesus responds to everything that people are going through around him that we get to see incarnational justice at work. It's by seeing who Jesus spends time with and, and, and who he challenges and who he confronts that we get to see incarnational justice at work. It's, it's clearly through his death on the cross and his resurrection that we get to see incarnational justice at work. Justice is incarnational. And now in, uh, in these days, in these times, in our times, you know, following the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, for us to see the justice of the kingdom of God in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to be present. Us, you, me, the church, we need to be present. And uh, if we, you know, briefly just go back a little bit, this, this idea of incarnational justice, this idea of um, our needing to be present for the justice of the kingdom of God to be done, um, it all starts really with hearing and seeing. 
hearing and seeing. It all starts with hearing and seeing the needs of uh, the oppressed. If you remember uh, back from a few weeks ago, uh, the, the, the turning point of Exodus and the Exodus narrative really was when the people cried out and God heard their cry and God saw their oppression and responded and, and intervened. And this, uh, this hearing and this seeing the oppressed and the marginalized and the other that we looked at when we looked at Exodus, it starts even before that it even began before the Exodus. Uh, you, again, you may remember we looked at it a few weeks ago, uh, but back in Genesis, we, we tackled this a few Sundays ago, the, the uncomfortable and difficult story of Hagar. You remember that thrilling Sunday? Um, yeah, it was, it was great. I look forward to that. And, um, but that story of Hagar, which is difficult and complex in so many different ways, it proclaims that God as Hagar herself calls him, is El Roy, the God who sees. And, you know, Hagar, just to recap, Hagar is Sarah's slave girl. And when Abraham and Sarah struggle to conceive, Sarah gives her slave, Hagar, to Abraham. And you've got this really messy, complex um, sexual injustice is added to the injustice of slavery. So there's a heck of a lot of injustice going on in that narrative and that story. And then, just to add insult to injury, Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar for getting pregnant, which is kind of what she wanted in the first place, so she's a bit confused. Uh, and Hagar has to run away, from, uh, run away from it all, and she runs away to go to the desert. But it's in that place, it's in the desert, it's in the wilderness that God meets her. And God meets her and assures her that he has heard her. And she tells her to name her son Ishmael, which means God hears. God sees, God hears, and God is present. And, and seeing and hearing and being present, these are all the intrinsic threads and parts of addressing justice. And this sense of seeing and hearing and being present, it's, it's woven throughout the scriptures uh, but is most wonderfully manifest, of course, in and through the, the person of Jesus himself. And two stories uh, that show uh, this idea of, um, of, of hearing and seeing and being present, being attentive to the whole person and not just um, looking at appearances, seeing things as they really are, come from uh, Mark chapter 5, and you've got these two pretty famous stories of the raising of Jairus' daughter and, and the, the healing of the woman with a, an issue of blood or a hemorrhage or whichever version it is you're reading. And what we've got here is uh, you've, you've got Jairus. Uh, Jesus is being called by Jairus. And uh, Jairus is this wealthy and he's well-respected man. And he, he wants Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. And exactly the same time as that's going on, there's some unnamed, unknown woman who just touches Jesus' cloak. She's desperate, 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 and, and hoping for a healing from this chronic illness that she's had. Um, and just as a side note, I, I don't think I'd ever noticed this before, uh, to my shame, but uh, Jairus' daughter is 12 years old, uh, and the woman has been suffering from this issue of blood for 12 years. She's been suffering with this chronic sickness for 12 years, which I have no idea what that means, but it's just 
free. You can have that for free. Um, essentially, it's a story. Uh, it's one sort of story in, in two parts, if you like. Um, one, is, one is a story of privilege and of power. Um, it, it's a story of urgency. It's a story of crisis. It's a, a story of desperate and acute need in, in, as far as Jairus is concerned. And, and at the other end of it, it's also a story of invisibility, a story of long-term chronic pain and suffering and misery. This, this woman's just experienced pain that is always present, always there. And on the surface, it doesn't really kind of look and feel like a, much of a story of justice. But there's something fundamentally unjust about sickness and, and how it strikes that is at its very essence the antithesis of the kingdom of God. And it comes straight out of the pit of hell. It comes straight from the fall. Um, but actually, if you kind of dig into this, there are a whole range of other almost imperceptible injustices that are kind of going on. Um, first of all, there's a clear injustice around gender, around gender and agency. And that there's that discrepancy that exists between Jairus on the one hand and this woman on the other. Uh, Jairus, he's named for a start. Uh, she's not. Uh, Jairus is this important man. Uh, he has basically everything in his favor. First of all, he's male. Um, he's socially accepted. He's a religious leader. He's wealthy. He's articulate. He's confident in and of himself enough. He has enough agency just to bowl up to Jesus and say, Jesus, come and heal my daughter. I want you to come and heal my daughter. And then there's this woman. Um, she has no name. She has no status. She's got nothing to offer in return for Jesus' attention. She's got nothing to offer even for a healing. You know, she's not even got payments. I mean, she spent all that she may have had on um, money, spent all of her money looking for a cure. As far as we can tell, she's alone. She's a woman. She's powerless. She has no probably resources to her name. She doesn't even have that agency. She doesn't even consider herself worthy enough or important enough or significant enough to be able to speak to Jesus directly. And instead, what she does is she sort of creeps around and approaches Jesus from behind. She's almost using the crowd as a, as a shield to, to keep her invisible and unseen and unheard and unnoticed. And, and you see, she doesn't, even, she doesn't even dare to touch Jesus. Like, she just touches his cloak, just the tiniest hem of his garment. She, she sort of dares to presume so little. And then there's the injustice of the way that uh, sickness separates. Um, sickness, there's something about sickness that by definition, cuts us off. It separates us. Um, the bleeding for this woman, the bleeding that she has in her culture, in her time, it makes her ceremonially unclean. And what that means is it takes her completely out of any normal community activity, out of any normal life. And any of you who've been self-isolating with COVID will know that that's what sickness does. It takes you out of normal life, normal interactions, normal routines. Any of you who are suffering or who have suffered at any point from some chronic disabling illness, you know, it could be anything, 
but you will know all too well. Even in our culture, if it doesn't make you ceremonially unclean, you will know it, it makes just the basic elements and aspects of life almost impossible. Just functioning on a basic level suddenly becomes incredibly difficult because sickness separates. And then there's time. Uh, time also adds something to the sense of injustice because it doesn't look like Jesus um, can heal both women. There's like there's not enough time. You know, if Jesus doesn't hurry, the little girl's going to die. And if Jesus does hurry, the unknown woman, yes, she may still live, but she's going to have to keep living in really bad, terrible pain. She's going to have to struggle to do the basics. And she's going to, at the same time, be ostracized by the whole of society. So this woman, she bravely summons up the courage to approach Jesus. We've got no idea what's going through her head. You know, does she think anything's going to change? Do you think, you know, is she thinking, is this going to work? Um, is she going to come away again disappointed the same way that she has from all of her encounters with physicians over the years? Um, unlike every physician that she's seen, unlike other, every other remedy that she's been prescribed, just one brief encounter with the very hem of Jesus cloak and she's healed miraculously and the moment she's healed not only is she free from the pain and suffering uh, she is in that very moment restored and and any excuse that may have existed for others to treat her differently is now gone and this is where we're seeing healing as being incarnational justice we've got no idea what's going through her mind um, she maybe just wants to go home and kind of close the doors and burst into tears, who knows? But she, of all people, would know that Jesus needs to kind of hurry up. He needs to move on. He needs to get to this sick little girl as quickly as possible because her life is clearly hanging in the balance. But um, Jesus being Jesus, you know, does he hurry on? No. Um, Jesus does the very opposite. Jesus, Jesus stops. Jesus, it's like Jesus takes time back. Jesus stops and, and takes time to be present. Um, you know, you've got the urgency of Jairus's request in everybody's mind, and everyone's sitting there going, what's he doing? Like, does he not know that there's a 12-year-old girl like down the road who's dying, and he's stopping and having a chat? What's he thinking? Um, but Jesus is taking time to bring this invisible woman, you know, not only into his sights, but into the sight of all those, or the whole crowd. This is very, very public. He wants all of them to see all the ones who've shunned her and her pain for all these years. Uh, meanwhile, the disciples, as usual, are confused about everything that's going on. Um, but Jesus wants to connect. It's like he wants to connect with this unknown woman. He wants to see her. He wants to hear her. He wants to be present to her. Uh, and suddenly, far from being just some unknown, unnamed woman hidden in the crowd, she is now in and of herself a person to be respected and valued. And she's now on a far more equal footing with Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, because Jesus' actions um, attend to the whole of her humanity, including her hidden needs, as well as challenging the perceptions and prejudice of the crowd, because justice is incarnational. Equally with Jairus, um, one of the things that has always perplexed me or puzzled me about this story is, why does Jesus insist on going with Jairus? I mean, like physically, like in person. There are plenty of other examples of miracles, like the healing of the centurion in Matthew 8, where Jesus sort of does it kind of like remotely. 
Um, but for some reason here, Jesus makes Jairus wait while he heals this woman and then has a little chat with her or whatever. You know, can you imagine how brutal it must have been for Jairus? He's this young father, he's got a 12-year-old daughter, and in his brain and in his head, every millisecond that goes by means that his daughter will be closer to death. But Jesus makes him wait. But then Jesus also goes himself. He goes in person. And, and I think what Jesus is teaching his disciples is that for justice to be done, we need to really see. We need to really hear. We need to really touch. We need to be present. Not distracted, not letting our pre-existing prejudices and values cloak the real person who's in front of us, but finding ways to, to attend to their full humanity putting compassion and the needs of the other, the suffering of the other first. The incarnational ministry of Jesus consistently brings together these threads of seeing, hearing, and being present. Uh, we see it with who Jesus spends his time with. I mean, Jesus, Jesus in the Gospels, I mean, he eats with um, publicans and, and Pharisees alike. He gives them all time. He's present to all of them. He sees them. He hears them all. He meets them in their homes. They just kind of hang out together. And uh, yes, his criticisms of the Pharisees are, are harsh, um, but they're not based on non-engagement. Jesus uh, spends time with them, so he kind of knows what he's talking about. And actually, if you look at Jesus' challenge of the Pharisees, it's actually their lack of grace and humility that Jesus seems like he's suggesting as being their key fault. It's their very lack of seeing. It's their very lack of hearing. It's their very lack of being present to the other in their midst that Jesus is calling them out on. Some of Jesus' harshest words are reserved for those who are convinced that they've got it all right. Um, his harshest words are for those who think that they know what justice and righteousness are, uh, but at the same time are ready to condemn everybody else for falling short. It's the lack of humility and grace and the dismissal of the other that I think Jesus takes issue with. Jesus isn't saying that the law or their principles are wrong. What he's saying is it's the way in which you're seeing yourself uh, with respect to others that is perhaps the failing. It's the fact that they are not seeing the other. It's the fact that they're not hearing the other, not being present to the other, that they're just not being just. That's the issue I think Jesus has with the Pharisees. Um, but at the same time, Jesus doesn't let everyone, he doesn't let everyone get off uh, lightly. He, uh, he also challenges those who are disadvantaged. Uh, he challenges them to take responsibility for some of their own choices. He tells the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, he says, look, you know, go, go on your way and, and, and leave your life of sin. Uh, in John 4, he, he has no hesitation in confronting the Samaritan woman with some really interesting pretty fairly probing challenges about some of her lifestyle choices. Zacchaeus, his unjust lifestyle is, is transformed in Luke 19. Um, but Jesus does it all with grace. 
the way that he encounters all of these people, he humanizes all of the people he talks to. He sees them first and foremost as human beings. He sees them, he hears them, he's always present to them. He doesn't reject them, doesn't write them off. He just invites them into another way of doing life, a better way of doing life, the abundance of life that we talked about in John at 10. Justice is incarnational. Gosh. Okay, so what might any of this mean for us? Well, um, as far as I'm aware, the option of full incarnation is, of course, uh, not open to any of us. It was a kind of Jesus thing. Um, but we can choose, in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, to see life through the eyes of the other. We can choose to see and, be, uh, and to hear and to be present to the other. We can choose to see their fears and to hear of their joys and to be present to the things that have shaped who they are and, and why they might be where they are. And a couple of possibly good questions for us all uh, to be asking ourselves this morning might be, um, in what ways am I actively seeing the injustices being done to those around me? Uh, in what ways am I actively hearing of the injustices being done to those around me? In what ways am I actively being present to the injustices being done to those around me? In, in what ways um, am I, wherever possible, entering into the incarnational justice demonstrated to us all by the life and the death and the, resurre the resurrection of Jesus? And the truth of this is this, this is actually just, this is quite hard. It's quite hard because a lot of this involves the other. Um, and most of us are comfortable with another who's the same as us. Whereas this involves engaging with another who is probably going to be very, very different to us. Um, and so maybe you're not sure what this looks like. Maybe you're not sure where, the, where to start. Uh, and I can understand that. I mean, it's, it's not straightforward. Uh, but it doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be wrestling with it and grappling with it. Um, as a starting place, if you're not sure, can I um, encourage you to go and grab Mike? Uh, you can grab him literally if you want, or metaphorically, but um, grab away. Uh, or come and talk to, don't grab me, come and talk to me or Kay or Manny um, and have a chat with any of us about ways in which you could explore this and help out and find out what this might look like. Maybe um, come and help out at the yard. The yard is our community space. If you knock this wall down, right, um, which some of us have been tempted to do, and just kind of walk through there, it's like about a five-minute walk on the estate. We have a, a double shop front. It's a community center. It's called the yard. You know, vineyard is really clever. And um, it's where we run things like uh, Food Bank and um, Grow Baby. And in the past, we've done things like um, breakfast clubs and uh, English language classes and job club and all community lunches, all kinds of different things, right? Um, but it's there. Uh, trust me, this is the voice of experience speaking. Trust me, you will have plenty of opportunities to meet all kinds of people experiencing all kinds of injustices. All who live within half a mile of this space. Um, maybe you could help out on Food Bank. 
um, or, or, or get involved and help signpost people to other agencies. There are so many fantastic organizations in and around Southwest London who are uh, providing and offering support. Maybe you can get involved with Grow Baby. Grow Baby is on a Thursday. Um, Kate and the team are doing an amazing job to just to help support those with young children and very few resources. Um, maybe you could get involved in offering support to refugees and asylum seekers. Um, maybe you could help us get Job Club relaunched. You know, Job Club is kind of stalled because of COVID, and we're trying to get that off the ground again so that we can help get people back into the dignity of work. Um, maybe you can help us start new areas of support, you know, for those in need, as um, all of us are facing challenges, the increase of the cost of, cost of living. This is hitting and is going to hit all of us hard. And there are people in our community that this is going to hit incredibly hard. It's going to make life incredibly difficult for a whole bunch of people for whom life is already incredibly difficult. Maybe you can help us help out with that. And maybe you could start something completely new. I've got no idea. Um, maybe you could do something for ex-offenders or for prisoners in Wandsworth uh, Prison, for women escaping domestic violence, for children of whom there are many around here who are sleeping on sofas or for the homeless. Or, 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 or. Uh, trust me, there is a very, very, very long list of those who need help. There is a very, very long list of people not on the other side of the world, but literally across the street from here, who are experiencing significant injustices and struggling just to live life, let alone enter into an abundance of life. Whatever it may be as a church community, as individuals, the question for us, honestly, is how are we demonstrating incarnational justice? It's lovely that we get to sit here. It's lovely we get to worship together. All of those things are fantastic and important. But as a church community, as individuals, are we embodying incarnational justice? Not just a few of us, but all of us. You know, many, many years ago, we used to do run a thing called the King's Table. It was, I think, the first hot meal being served on the embankment to the homeless people um, that, that got started, that started here. Um, and it was fantastic. It was amazing. It was an amazing ministry. But there were about 10 people on the team. And, you know, back then the church was probably about 400 people in the church. And what was great was the, the other 390 of us could say, yes, 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 we're involved in, um, in the homeless and in ministry to the homeless. And yes, we do wonderful things for compassion. I mean, I'll never speak to a homeless person, for goodness sake, absolutely not. But I know a man who does. And I'm part of a church that does something like that. So that's okay. It's not okay. We all need to be, as a body of Christ, all need to be hands-on, engaged, active, actively involved in demonstrating justice and being incarnational um, in the way that we do that. Um, how are we actively seeing the injustices um, being carried out to people we meet every week? How are we actively engaged in hearing their stories and hearing how they are being affected and hearing how they've been disaffected um, how, be, how are we being actively present to all of these people and more as filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we seek to extend God's kingdom uh, everywhere and in every way. And I do understand, I, honestly, I really do. I mean, uh, I need to learn about this because I'm not very good at this. I mean, if you come and if you're ever at the yard when I'm there and some of our friends wander in, 
I'm not that great at being present to them, if I'm honest. I'm not that great at, at seeing them in their fullness, the fullness of their humanity. Some of them drive me absolutely flipping around the bend. Um, it's hard for me to see them. It's hard for me to hear. I'm learning. The Lord, very by His goodness and grace, is softening my heart. That's um, so why I need some of you to come alongside me and show me how it's done. I, I recognize it's hard. Um, I understand it can be scary. I understand that it can be a challenge. Um, uh, I understand that we are often in that process encountering people who are utterly different to us. And, you know, we're, some of us are just afraid that we'll have nothing in common and we'll have no idea about how to engage with them meaningfully. And I understand that. And it can be really difficult. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be trying to work out how to do it. And um, if that's us, maybe a good place to start would be um, exploring the difference course that we are launching. Kate and I are, are running um, a thing called the difference course. It starts on May the 4th. It's been put together by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it may just help us bridge some gaps with um, some of these things. So I've got a little, another little video here for you to watch. Why don't you have a look at this, and then we'll see what the Spirit of God wants to do.